Well, let me invite you this morning to turn to Psalm chapter 2. You'll find that on page 448 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. And we resume our summer study in the book of Psalms. And I trust the Lord will richly bless us this wonderful and powerful psalm that even our brother Mark uh, shared with us a little bit this morning. Mark, I thought you were going to preach a sermon. I thought it fantastic. So <laughs> that was great. So Psalm 2 all day long today, and so we praise God for that. I trust uh, you will be blessed as God intends. So uh, hopefully you found your way there. You'll do well to have the Bible open as we work verse by verse through these, this wonderful psalm. Hear now the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We think it's a powerful and compelling picture of our Lord and the world's ongoing rebellion against him. Help us, help us to see the folly of sin today. The, the misery of opposing the one that holds us in his hand. Perhaps there are some here today that do not know Christ as their king. Will you not bring them to the point where they would lay down their arms of rebellion today? and surrender to the king in which you have enthroned, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that they might know of his grace and his mercy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's already been said that this Wednesday is our nation's Independence Day. It was 1776, July 4th, as you know, that we declared ourselves to be a sovereign nation. The events that preceded that declaration took place throughout 1775 and early 1776. In fact, back in 1775, the air was already thick with revolution as the First Continental Congress sent King George a petition for redress of the grievances against the colonies. There was a boycott of British goods underway in Boston Harbor, remained under a British blockade as a punishment for the Boston Tea Party two years prior. And amid these mounting tensions, the Second Virginia Convention 
was convened to discuss how Virginia would respond to the ongoing hostilities between this colony and the sovereign back in England. Roughly 120 delegates filed into Richmond's St. John's Church, including the most prominent of Virginia's colonial leaders. George Washington was there. Thomas Jefferson was also there. And Patrick Henry, a well-respected lawyer from Hanover County, was there. Henry was, of course, as you know, blessed with this mellifluous speaking voice and a, an incredibly quick wit. And he's also one who had a reputation for opposing British taxation upon the colonies. And so he arrived at the Virginia Convention determined to persuade the fellow delegates to raise a militia in opposition to England. Well, after several delegates had spoken on the issue, Henry rose from his seat. He was sitting in the third pew, and he took the floor. There was a Baptist pastor who was present watching all this, and he would later describe Henry with these words, an unearthly fire burning in his eye. Henry spoke without notes and was described as this. Excitement began to play more and more upon his features as the tendons of his neck stood out white and rigid like whipcords. Our petitions have been slighted and have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded and we have been spurned with contempt. From the foot of the throne we must fight, Henry said. I repeat, sir, we must fight. Uh, An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. At this point, Henry let this somewhat defiant words hang in the air. When he finally began speaking again, it was described as a thunderous bellow that seemed to shake the walls of the building and all that were within them. His fellow delegates leaning forward in their seats as he reached his crescendo saying, the war is actually begun. Our brethren are already in the field while we stand here idle. What is it the gentlemen wish? What will we have? Is life so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains? And at this, as he spoke, he held up his, his hands as if they were, they're, they're manacled together. And Henry would say, forbid it, almighty God. I know not what other course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty. And then he broke those chains, picked up an ivory letter opener on the pulpit, and thrust it into his heart, mimicking a knife blow, saying, or give me death. Can you imagine what it had been to be at that meeting? I mean, I was just thinking about it and studying it this week. It just resonates in my heart. I mean, it makes me want to go out and get a musket or something. You know, it's, it's very, very compelling. I don't think it's just an American reality, however. I mean, the idea to be free of tyranny and oppression that seems to be a universal desire, doesn't it? It spans this earth. We all want liberty. Liberty we'll celebrate, won't we, on Wednesday? Yeah, sometimes I wonder if we take this desire too far. I wonder if sometimes we want freedom, not just from tyranny and oppression, but we want, to, we want freedom from any type of restraint placed upon us. We want unbridled 
personal freedom, and we are willing to wage war against anyone who would restrain us. We might even, in the words of the psalmist, rage against the Lord himself. We're in Psalm 2 today, as you know. It is the first of what are called the royal psalms. That means it's a psalm that relates immediately to the king of Israel. But as we'll see, it, 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 greater fulfillment is in the coming anointed one or the Messiah. Many think that Psalm 2 was actually a coronation psalm. That is, it would be a psalm that would be sung when a new king was crowned in Israel. And if that's the case, it gives us a unique insight into how, how the Jewish people understood their king. For instance, in verse 7, it says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so evidently they, they understood the king of Israel had a very unique relationship with God, almost like that of a father to a son. And in fact, you notice that this king will not rule simply over Israel, but over the world, as you see in verse 8, asking me and I will make the nations your heritage. Of course, no, no king of Israel ever achieved so much. You know, David and all his splendor, Solomon, and all of his power never came close to, to taking possession of the ends of the earth, right? They fall far short of this. In fact, one pastor says these words fit the kings in Jerusalem like NFL shoulder pads fit a little boy, right? The words of the psalm are simply too big for them. And so let me suggest to you that these words were not simply related to an earthly king, but, but a heavenly Messiah, or as, as the psalmist says in verse 2, the anointed one, my anointed. And by the way, the word anointed simply is the Hebrew word Messiah. And, and in fact, once the Jewish monarchy ended in 586, when Babylon came and conquered Israel, they would never again have a king. The, the, those who return will begin to consider Psalm 2 and the other royal psalms, not just as psalms addressing the, their former kings, but addressing the coming son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. You know, of course, we're spending this summer in the, in the book of Psalms, and, and we're going to work our way through six or seven of these psalms. You may not know, however, that there's an order to the psalms. That there are actually, um, the Psalms, the Psalter is divided into five books. You see in Psalm 1, uh, right above verse 1, you'll see something that will say book 1. That's not something that the English uh, editors have done. This is actually something in the text. There are five collections of Psalms. And so there's this order. And the Psalter really begins dealing with the king's of Israel and kind of starts there. And then towards the middle, the book of Psalms begins to deal with how to live in exile. And then finally, it, it talks about, okay, what happens when God returns? So, so the book, book one of the book of Psalms is from Psalm 1 through verse 41, almost all of which are written by David. And as you go through, you're going to discover and we'll discover just in the time that we're in this summer that the king is often in trouble. In fact, one summarized book one of the book of Psalms uh, saying God rescues his kings from his enemies. And we'll see that very clearly in Psalm 2 today. In fact, like Psalm 1 that we considered a couple weeks ago, Psalm 2 really presents two ways to live, doesn't it? Maybe you've already sensed that as we've read it. Uh, the, you, you, could, you could rebel against the heavenly king, or you can give him your adoring worship. Those seem to be the options. There seem to be no middle ground. And I think the purpose of this psalm, and therefore the purpose of this sermon, is to show you and to argue with you and to, to do my best to prove to you the futility and the misery in fighting against the Lord's anointed. My hope, my prayer, is that if you do not know Jesus, 
as your king. That God would appeal to you through his word here. And that rather than fighting for liberty from him, you would gladly submit to him as your Lord. That you would even in your heart, as I've entitled this sermon, shout, long live the king. The outline is very simple. My sermon outline is just from the the outline in the passage. You'll notice that there are four stanzas in this psalm, three verses each. Interestingly enough, each one of those stanzas, of those four stanzas, are spoken by a different speaker. So we'll, we'll, we'll begin by hearing the world speak, and then heaven, and then the Messiah, and then finally the, the psalmist speaks. We, the world speaks first, and they speak of their rebellion. Consider the first point this morning, that there is a worldly rebellion. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, the psalmist asks. Why is there this rebellion? Now, if this is a a coronation song, it's a strange way to begin a song, don't you think? Because starting with a rebellion. It might be that when a new king was crowned, the neighboring nations thought it wise to test how capable a leader he is, that they would plot against him to, to push him. They would strategize how to take territory from him. And so perhaps it begins that for, uh, this way for that reason. And so he imagines, if you will, these midnight meetings and these secret strategy sessions as both the kings and the rulers, they gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, as you see in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, his Messiah. And what the psalmist is presenting to us is this truth that runs throughout Scripture, begins in Genesis 3, really calls all the way up to Revelation chapter 20, is that the world is in rebellion against the Lord. That the world hates the Messiah. And there's this hostility. In fact, the hostility amazes the psalmist, right? Because he he asked the question there in verse 1, why? Why are they doing this? Uh, It it seems, how can anybody be so foolish? You can almost see in your mind's eye the psalmist shaking his head in disbelief as he writes these words. Why why do the nations plot against the Lord, he asks. How How can anybody do something so futile that they rage and plot, but they do so, as he says, in vain? How is it possible that anyone thinks they could win this battle? That they could defeat him? That fight against the very one that sustains him? You know when you woke up this morning? You, you made it through the night? Because this one in whom the world rebels against sustained you? And you opened your eyes and looked around because God has given you eyes and sight. And you got out of bed and, you know, walked to the bathroom because the Lord has given you strength and legs. And you, you said to a loved one, perhaps, hello, good morning, because God has given you breath in your lungs and vocal cords that work. And that maybe you embraced someone or shook a hand this morning or hugged a child or, or kissed a spouse because God has given you arms and lips and love. God has given you that. God has sustained you. And yet men and women and nations and kings are in this solidarity against the very one that sustains them. It'd be like a branch raging against the tree that gives it life. Why, he asks. I mean, why indeed? Why would you rebel against one who's so good and so powerful? Why would you hate the very one that, that gives you life? Now, I understand that when we talk about these, the idea of that the world hating God, some people uh, 
immediately object to that idea. They, they think that's a foolish idea. They think that's just pastors speak. There goes the pastor again, uh, using exaggeration and hyperbole and all the rest. Right? People don't conspire. Come on, pastor. People don't conspire against God. Most people, in fact, most people believe in God. Well, I, I don't think the psalmist is saying most people are hostile to the idea of God. You know what? I think God has put in us this understanding that God exists. But they're hostile to the idea of the biblical God. I mean, just think about the Messiah, the anointed one, when he did show up. Did, did everyone, everyone rush to him to love him? You know, he, he showed up, and the words that he said were interesting. He said things like, if, if you're to be my disciple, this is, listen, you have to do this. You have to deny yourself, and you have to take up your cross daily, and you have to follow me. That's, if you want to be my disciple, that's what you have to do. In other words, I'm Lord. I'm your king. You do what I want. I have total control in your life. I put a yoke around your neck. You know what I did uh, before I became a Christian? Anything I wanted to. Right? Right? Very little restraint. Now that I'm a follower of Christ, there's a great deal of restraint upon me. The Lord puts a yoke upon you. Make, make no mistake, he owns you. You have been bought with a price, and people think about that kind of God, the God that demands and commands and instructs and guides, and people hate that kind of God. They think, oh, how primitive it is to believe in that kind of God. And we haven't even mentioned a God of wrath and justice and holiness and all the rest. I was in a, a nursing home a couple weeks ago presenting the gospel. And, of course, to present the good news of the gospel, you have to present the bad news of sin and wrath. And I, were, I got word afterwards that there were some that were rather upset with how, how negative this was, that, that God would be angry at sin, that God, God would be holy, and that there would be justice in God, right? The world chafes against this idea that, that God, as you will see later, breaks the nations like pottery. How silly, they say. They hate that God. In particular, according to verse 2, they hate his anointed. As I mentioned, when he showed up, did they all fall on his feet in adoring worship and submission to him? No, they killed him. They plotted against him. They strategized how they could trip him up in some theological argument to discredit him. When that failed, they, they trumped up these courts and got false testimony, and they lied about him. They spit on him. I mean, who spits on people? The Lord, they spit on. They beat him. They whipped him. They struck him, they blindfolded him, they mocked him, they slandered him, they stripped him naked, and they put his hands and feet on a beam and nailed him to a cross there to die. They murdered the Lord. The world is in rebellion against the Lord. They hate the king. In fact, you know, you may not know this. In fact, I didn't know this until I studied this psalm. This psalm is quoted 18 times in the New Testament. Isn't that extraordinary? In fact, probably the most prominent place is in Acts chapter 4. And it's this time that Peter has healed a man in the name of Jesus rather publicly. And the Jewish leaders do not like him using the name of Jesus. And so they arrest Peter and they threaten Peter and they say, listen, don't you ever say that name again. And so Peter returns and the church gathers and they pray in Acts chapter 4. You know, what, what do they pray at this time when the church is first encountering persecution after the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord? They pray Psalm 2. They lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, here it is, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they take that psalm, which they just prayed, and they apply it to their own time, saying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. Now, there's much that we could said about that prayer, but I just want you to know that they list them. They said, well, we got Pilate, and we got Herod, and we got the Jews, and we had the Gentiles, and they have united in this alliance against the Lord. The rebellion was clearly seen when Christ walked upon this earth, but I tell you, the rebellion has not ended. It continues to this very day, even, I'm afraid, in our fair land. I was this spring coaching um, an assistant coach on two of my three sons' little league teams. And, uh, we, of course, uh, baseball is uh, the only sport worth playing uh, to any reasonable person. And so we were having a great deal of time, and, and so I want to impart the wisdom of baseball to them. And sometimes when you're coaching, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but when you're coaching someone and you spend hours and hours coaching them on how to do something, and then they don't do it in the game, it's frustrating, right? And I, especially on my oldest son's team, uh, th- this would happen periodically. You know, the boy would throw behind the runner or the ump would call a strike, you know, over his head. And you would, you would hear, interestingly enough, I don't know if you've ever encountered this, you would hear from, from, from your own coaches, you would hear from the other team's coaches, you would hear from some parents out in the stands, the name of the Lord, right? Jesus Christ. Yeah? But interestingly, it was not evoked in a form of a prayer. It, it, it was a it has somehow become a filthy swear word, an unclean curse to explain your frustration. But not once, by the way, did I ever hear this entire season anyone in exclamation name Buddha. No, one's, no, one, no one shouted out at a bad play or a bonehead move, Muhammad or Moses or even Joseph Smith. I didn't hear that a single time. But Jesus Christ, I heard over and over and over and over. Now I ask you, why is the name of God's son a curse word? Psalm 2 answers that question. The world hates him. There is a rebellion against him. It is war. And you could have rebellion against the Lord without having an armed crusade. You, all you have to do is reject that Jesus is the anointed. That you say, well, you can, you can follow Jesus in your house of worship. You can't follow Jesus in, your, in the public square. We'll tolerate him in your homes for now. But you can't, he's not allowed in the schools, that's for sure. And he's not allowed in the, in the neighborhood parks, that's for sure. And he's not allowed in the workplaces, that's for sure. And I'm telling you, we today echo the words of the Jews 2,000 years ago. We will not have this man reign over us. The rebellion continues. There is war against the Lord's anointed We want freedom from him, as you see in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart, there being the Lord and his anointed, and cast away their cords from us. So the answer to the question in verse 1, why do they plot against the Lord, is answered in verse 3. We want freedom from our creator. So the nations want to throw off his shackles. They want to be done with his fetters in order to do what they want to do. Now, the bonds in which it was referring to are the fetters, the, the, the cords there in verse 3 is a reference to God's laws. And God's laws and God's commandments and God's demands upon us are simply insufferable to the world. These bonds stifle our desires. They spoil our freedoms. They deny our happiness. And the serpent continues to whisper in our ear. 
why would you submit to him when you can rule? Why, why, he's holding out on you. He's denying you what you know you want. You have to be true to yourself. Is that not the mantra of our day? Is that not the impulse of, of the human heart? I belong to no one but myself. I, I'm going to be true to myself above all. I need to do what I want to do, right? I, I need to be who I want to be. I need to, to, to follow my own path. I'm, I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. I, I'm going to do it my way. We want to be free from him. In fact, historically, sociologists will tell us that humanity has sought two kinds of freedom. One, freedom from tyranny. We want to be freed from oppression. We want to be freed from be, for, to express ourselves and so forth. The second kind of freedom is that we have sought. We want freedom from want. We want, we want economic opportunity. We want opportunities to live and to thrive. But today, the sociologists are saying we are now seeking a third kind of freedom, and it's a freedom from religion. That is the freedom from anything that restricts our desires. The freedom, a freedom from clergy, certainly. A freedom from family obligation, yes. A freedom from any type of societal norms, any type of restrictions that our culture might place upon us. We want freedom from those norms. You, you please understand that our, you go back 60 years, 70, 80 years, and then from the rest of humanity... Start at the beginning and go back to like 1940s, maybe, maybe even 1960s. And our ancestors all understood that this is my family and this is my community and this is my culture and this is my faith and therefore I am obligated. I have duty. I have restrictions because of this. And I do this and I do that because of these commitments and I may not even want to do them. They may not even be in my own best interest, but I will do them because I'm bound to these obligations, right? So I will grab a sword and I will enlist in the military, not because it's my best interest, but because I have a duty to the commitments around me. We today have cut those bonds. We don't want them. There's a, I've been, I don't know why, I've been listening to a lot of music from the 60s. It's, it might be the Californian in me, I don't understand it, but there's a song in the 60s that, uh, let, let me give you the line, I, I apologize in advance because you'll be singing it the rest of the sermon, but you got to go where you want to go, right? Do what you want to do with whoever you want to do it with. No, no commandments, no obligations, right? So what's left to guide us? Our want us, right? That's it, our desires. The, the, the bonds have been cut, right? I'm just gonna do what I wanna do and I'm gonna go where I wanna go and I'm gonna do it with whoever I wanna do it. I'm free, I'm free. And are we any more happy? Has it led to the peaceful and fulfilling society that has been promised to us? Because I think more and more people are lying to us today and more and more people are walking away from their spouses today and more and more people are walking from their, away from their children today and more and more people are walking away from their parents today and more and more companies are firing their employees today and employees uh, are stealing from their, their employers today and more and more people are committing adultery today and it seems to me more and more people are addicted to drugs today. Why? Why? Well, my friends, we're just going where we want to go. We're just doing what we want to do and we will do it to whomever we want to do it with. We are told you, you, listen, you'll be happy when you answer to no one but yourself. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, saw this coming. He, he saw this cultural myth that happiness comes from complete freedom. And, he, and there's this, this idea that we will, when we're free to make our own rules and to define our own meaning, right, then, then we'll be happy, right? Then we, when I just could be true to every, whatever I want. And Lewis compared this to a fish that decides it wants to be free by escaping the confines of the water. 
We might say today that the fish self-identifies as a bird. And who are, who are, listen, listen, who are we to tell a fish that's not a fish? Right? right? You want to be a bird? You're a bird. Okay. Maybe we, well, we'll sew some wings on you. Right? And, and so what happens? Well, the fish leaves the water, Lewis says, flops out of the ocean, and it's free. It's free. It's free from the confines of the water. But is it happy? No. Because the fish was made for the water. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, you are made for God. His laws and his commandments and his demands are not a burden. They are the water in which we are made to swim. In fact, you go back to Psalm 1 that we saw last week. Remember the metaphor there was, was the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water. or bears his fruit in season. Leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, it prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. So you have two, two options. You have a rooted tree or you have wind-driven chaff. You have a tumbleweed. I ask you, which is more free? I think we probably all agree the chaff is more free. The tumbleweed is more free. Which is more abundant? Which is more fulfilling? Which is more life-giving? It is the one who is rooted into the Lord, rooted into God, the one who is not guided by their wannas, not going where they want to go and doing what they, right, what, what, so I'll go, go from marriage to marriage and gender to gender and I'll just go on and on and on and I'm just going to do whatever I want and I'm telling you it leads to freedom maybe and misery. Because we're made to submit to this king, not to rebel against him. And though this rebellion continues, it is ultimately impotent. As we consider point number two, and we will move much quicker here, a heavenly rebuke. So how does God respond to this international rebellion? What does he do when the nations form their mutiny? He just has some options, doesn't he? Maybe he calls his generals together. Right? He gets you know, some of the archangels and come together, let's figure this out. Maybe he counts his troops. What kind of resources do I have available to me? Maybe he gets some advisors and say, well, they're plotting their strategy against me. Maybe I should plot my strategy against them. What does he do? Well, look in verse 4. We're told what he does. He who sits in heaven laughs. Right? Man's rebellion against the Almighty is laughable. Right, the nations may rage, but God doesn't need to rage, right? Because, he, because it's silly to him. It's simply laughable. It, imagine, for instance, that Mike Tyson, uh, the, the, the heavyweight champion, in his heyday, invited to take on all challengers. And so I walk into the ring with, you know, Tyson and take off my robe and, you know, put my, my fist up. And I say, well, I'll give this a shot. Uh, w- what do you think Mike Tyson would do? He would laugh, and, and so would you, right? right? And he would laugh not because of the hurt he's going to put on me. He not laugh because he's going to destroy me in one punch, probably put me in the hospital for quite some time. He doesn't, he doesn't laugh in that. He, he, why would he laugh? He would laugh in the folly of someone like me thinking I could take on someone like him. He would be laughing at the arrogance of it. You see, God laughs at this rebellion because he said, wait a second, I made you. I sustain you. I have all power, and you want to fight against me. You think you can defeat me. Right? We even sang of his power today. No 
sing of his might. Oh, tell of his might. Oh, sing of his grace. His robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. He is mighty and powerful, and once he's done laughing, he will speak, and he will speak of the most significant event in human history, which evidently is terrifying, as you see in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Right? So God, God's not afraid, but they should be. Because he's chosen a king. He's anointed his servant. And now, now for the Jews in, in the days of the Jewish monarchy, this must have been an incredible source of hope. But again, no mere earthly king causes the nations to, to shudder in terror. And he says, look to Zion and see my king. And that's terrifying, according to verse 5, because they, they can't remove him. Right? They can't dethrone. They can't, they can't defeat the one whom they war against. God has set him there. And so God, you know, we would do as we choose and live as we may, but it's not going to change the fact of who's sitting upon the throne in heaven. That, that all, all power in the world can't stop him. I mean, how many times have we tried? Pharaoh tried to try to destroy the Jewish nation, ended up caring for Moses in his own house. Haman tried, built a, Haman built a gallow, ended up hanging on it himself. Right? The, the priests and the powerful of Israel tried it, they put Jesus to death, and all they did was simply accomplish God using the cross to pay for the sin of those who trust him, triumphing over the grave. Paul and Silas, they were beaten, thrown in prison, right? For, and, and all that did was led to the jailer being saved at midnight. And on and on. It just keeps going. The world keeps trying to destroy this. In fact, there was an emperor, a Roman emperor named Diocletian, who was a great enemy of the church, persecuted the church. And uh, he spread his empire, spread it all the way to Roman Empire, all the way to Spain. And he, he erected a monument in Spain. You go there and read it if you want. I'll, I'll save the trip and tell you what it says. Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augusti. So he thinks highly of himself, I think. And then under his title, it says, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians. By the way, seven years later, Diocletian was dead. I mean, who, who knows Diocletian? And his successor named Christianity as the official religion of Rome. Right, so the raging nations of the earth, they may yell and scream, they may plot and plan, but, it's, but God will see to it that his king will rule. And so we need to understand... It, if we think by our mere desire or our mere, you know, laws here in our land that we can dethrone the Lord's anointed, we're going to find ourselves, to use a phrase that I find utterly ridiculous, but it's so common today, so let me use it, on the wrong side of history. Right? Because Jesus is not up for election, is he? He has no term limits. And we want him or not, he is the king of kings, and he is the lord of lords. And therefore, you and I, and all the powerful, and all the rich, and all the brilliant people that live today, or has ever lived, or will ever live, joyfully or not, willfully or not, one day will bow their knee in acknowledgement of his greatness, and of his power, and his authority. So rage if you must. Make war on him if you think it wise. But the ant shall not kick down Everest. God has set his king on his throne, and he shall reign. In fact, it's now the psalmist brings us in the third stanza. We've heard the nation speak and heaven speak, and now it is the Lord's anointed turn to address 
those in mutiny against him. As we consider thirdly, the king's reign. He begins by announcing his identity there in verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, me being the anointed, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now again, for the kings of Israel, they saw their coronation as placing themselves in this very unique relationship with God, but it ultimately pointed forward to the literal fulfillment, the literal son of God in Jesus, right? the, the, the coming son of David. In fact, these words here, in verse 7, were spoken by our Lord, um, both at Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. You remember that. God would, would say, you are my son. And he would declare this to all who could hear it. And if heaven's testimony, by the way, was not enough to confirm his identity, his unique sonship is made evident by his resurrection. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says, our Lord was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. So you want to know if Jesus is unique amongst all the world's religious founders? Why is he in particular the son of God? Why is he the king and not the others? Well, all you have to do is look at the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. No, no, no other has gone into death and three days later passed out of it and then walked around for 40 days appearing to hundreds of people. The, the, the tomb is empty showing that he is truly who he says he was. He is the son of God and he lives today as king. He reigns right now from heaven, and he has a destiny unlike any other, as he refers to in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, his destiny is to rule the world. And so though, though many may resist him now, please understand there is coming a day when God is going to give him all the nations. The very ends of the earth will be his. He's going to rule them all. And in fact, that's happening right now. You say, well, how, how is he going to rule these rebellious nations? He's going to send out his troops to put down this mutiny? Well, not right away. Not for the last 2,000 years. Not for today, at least so far today. He's going to do it first by sending out his messengers, right? Offering what? Peace. Offering that there is peace. They're calling for people to surrender to him, calling for people to repent and turn from their self-rule and come and come to the Lord and bow their knee before him as a king, right? That, that God wills, I love this verse, God wills his son to take possession of all the world. Just ask me, I'll give it to you. And then he sends us to go and make that happen. Right? That we go forth and declare there is a king. This is why a dozen of us are going to Africa in a, in a month. And, and another, another group is, is going to South Dakota this month. Right? I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this. I, I always get trouble when I get off my notes, but here I go. You know, do, do you think I want? Do you think I, I, I enjoy? I go to Africa once a year. And I'll tell you, it's not because of the pleasant climate. Okay? It's hot and humid, and there is no air conditioning, and it's not because of the intestinal health I will enjoy while I'm there. Okay? That is for sure to be disrupted, as it is every time I go there. And it's not because it's clean. It's not. It's a filthy place. Why do I go? Why, why are you going to South Dakota? Because God says to the king, I'll give you the nations. I'll give, it, I'll give you Africa. I'll give you Eagle Butte. And then he sends his messengers to go and say, there is a king. And he rules. 
and you ought to lay down your arms of rebellion and submit your life to this king and he will cover you with grace and mercy and love that you will experience his forgiveness of all your sins. This is why we make disciples of all nations. Why Jesus says, go to all, go make disciples of all nations. Well, who do you think you are, Jesus? Go and make your disciples of all nations? Well, who does he think he is? He thinks all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, he says, and make my disciples. He has all authority. The world belongs to him. One day we'll be in complete submission to him and we are to go and make sure that happens through the most peaceful means possible as he sends us. Yet if they refuse his mercy, you see in verse 9, they will receive his wrath as he mentions his authority. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see what the psalmist is saying, if they reject his reign, it will be like a clay pot fighting against an iron bar. All, all, that's, all that's left is to be shattered only the proud, only the proud clay jar would, would stand up against an iron bar. Only those who would refuse his mercy. By the way, there are records in Egypt, interesting enough, that they had clay jars with the names of cities inscribed. And they kept them in their temple. And when, if a city would rebel against a pharaoh, he would go in and take that clay jar and he would dash it on the ground in the presence of their deity Right? And, and they're symbolizing that, that their God has turned against them. And I wonder if David is drawing on this imagery. That he talks about this clay jar being destroyed to emphasize how easy it's going to be one day for the anointed to put down the rebellion. Please understand, you may not like verse 9, but it is in the Bible. You don't, you don't get to just take it out because you don't like it. The Bible is teaching us, isn't it, that Jesus is more than a moral example. He's more than a righteous man. My friends, he's even more than a substitutionary sacrifice. He is the Lord of the world. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he will rule this world one day. And in his grace, he invites all to receive him now while there still is time as we consider, lastly, the needed response. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, he says, right? Because of everything we just talked about in the first nine verses. Because there is this king, because he's enthroned, because he's powerful and mighty, the very son of God. Now, therefore, what? Wise up, he says, and surrender to him. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He says, you need to serve the king. You need to treat Jesus as a king, which of course raises the question, how do we do that? How do we treat Jesus as our king? Because I think many people will say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus. And you know, when I get in trouble, I talk to Jesus. I ask Jesus for help. But that's not, that's not serving him as a king. How do, we, how do we serve him as a king? Well, I think this partly is obvious. You obey him, right? Jesus will tell you what to do, and then you are, if he is your king, what do you do? You, you do it. I know that's incredibly insightful, but there, there it is, right? Because often people say, you know, I'll obey when it makes sense to me. I'll obey when it's easy for me. But when it's hard, or when it's unpleasant, or when it's sacrificial, when it creates an awkward situation, it might embarrass me a little bit, then, then I don't think I'll obey. And I don't want to obey then. Well, if that's the case, then you're treating Jesus more as a counselor than a king. 
right? That he, he's not one who gives you commands, he gives recommendations. And this, hey, this is what I would like, but it's up to you to do it, right? And then you decide based upon your wannas whether you're going to do it or not. That's not treating Jesus as a king. That's treating Jesus as a counselor, as an, an advisor, right? You decide who you are going to forgive, right? Well, I'm not forgetting him, right? Even though the Lord commands you to, or you decide whether you're going to give. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give what God asked me to give. You decide whether you serve the church. Well, I don't think I want to serve the church. I'm not going to get involved. Drive is, creates awkward situation. I had a bad experience in the past. I'm not, not going to get involved. My friends, you're treating not him not as a king, but as an advisor. As you take or leave his, his commands and, and, and uh, demands, you treat his commands as counsel and not what they are, the, the Lord's decrees upon you. You obey him. In fact, even beyond that, you surrender to him. Because maybe you obey, and this happens quite often. People obey, and then life doesn't go the way they want. It gets off the rails. Right? Wait a second, God. I, I've been obeying you. I've been treating you as a king, and now everything's ruined. Now, 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 now everything, there's all sorts of trouble upon me. I thought if I obey you, things are going to go smooth and go easy. And times people get angry, and they get upset. And sometimes people even walk away from God at that point. But my friends, if Jesus is your king, well, then you need to accept the assignment in which you have been given. Right? You, you, he, he knows what's best. That doesn't mean there's not a struggle there. That's not a mean there's not sadness there or there's there mourning and grief there. There certainly is, but there is a yielding to that. Right? You, so I'll, I'll go into the fire if that's where he sends me. Now, I'll pray that the fire goes away, but I, if he sends me into it, that's where I'm going to go because I have surrendered my life to him. So we obey the king, we surrender the king. Well, you see there in verse 11, we worship the king. Look what it says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Right, the, that phrase, serve the Lord, maybe even your translation puts it this way. It's worship the Lord. It's a, so the word serve is the same word that's often translated as worship. We are to worship the Lord. And how do we worship the Lord? How do we serve the Lord? We serve the Lord with fear. We, look what it says. We rejoice with trembling. And so, you know, one way we do this, we gather here, don't we, you know, once a week and for, an, you know, an hour and a half or typically, you know, an hour and 40 minutes, right? <laughs> um, and we, we gather together, why? To worship. But is our worship like this? Man, I want this to be a place of rejoicing. I, I, I pray that one day that this will be a, a, um, a, a place where, where we, we, we feel free. To rejoice, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I say Africa is not my favorite place to be, but they are some of my favorite people to preach to, is <laughs> they rejoice um, all the time, and I, I want to rejoice. But look at that, rejoice with trembling. There's a weight. There's joy, and there's heaviness. You see, what we we don't gather together every Sunday for a pep rally. It's not rah rah Jesus. Okay? We we don't gather together every Sunday for to create a, a a worshipful experience so that you you get the you know the hairs on the back of your neck that stick up and all, all the rest. You know what we why do we gather together? We gather together because we have joy in our hearts and there's an awe, a tremble in our souls as we come before him. Have, when's the last time you've trembled before God? When you have been praising him with God's people, and there's been a tremble in your soul that you can't believe you are singing with God's people to the very creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer, that your heart is filled with joy and even weight at the same time. That's what it's like to treat him as a king. 
Well, there's another way you treat him as a king. Tim Keller has helped me understand this, is that we should have great expectations from him. My friends, I'll be brief, but if you're too pessimistic about what God can do in your life, you're not treating him as a king. He's a great king. He loves you. He's powerful. I've been reading a biography on John Newton, the the, the incredible man who's just, pour, God poured out grace upon him hundreds of years ago. And one of his hymns that he wrote is, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power as such none can ever ask too much. You treat him as a king, or do you say, oh, you can never fix this. You can't do anything about this. That we are to, to surrender our life to him and to obey him and to worship him, even to expect great things from him. And then the psalmist there in verse 12 ends with this option, doesn't he? You can either receive his affection or you can receive his wrath. The choice is up to you. Isn't that wonderful? The choice is up to you. What do you want? God's affection or God's wrath? Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. So what we understand about Jesus is gentle and he's tender and he won't snuff out the smoldering wick and he won't break the bruised reed. We see this gentleness with, in Luke 7 in our scripture reading, our New Testament reading, with this, the woman of the city, this sinful woman. He's so gentle and kind with her. But he will be angry to the proud and the unsubmissive and the rebellious. Right? In other words, if you do not kiss the son in faith, just like that woman did long ago, then you will, my friends, I tell you on the authority of the word of God, then you will perish. You'll perish under his wrath. And I pray that these words, I mean, if you have not come to Christ, I, I pray that these words, you see that there, lest he be angry. That you would hear this warning. These are not my words. That, that you keep up this fight. You keep saying, I'm my, it's my way, it's my way, it's my way. You are simply incurring the wrath of God. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we see then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There's a day of wrath coming for those who continue in their rebellion, right? You're going to meet God one day. My, my exhortation this morning is to prepare to meet your God. How are you going to do that? You're going to walk in chewing gum, you know? You know, my pastor was an uncle. My uncle was a pastor, rather, right? I should be okay. I, you know, I'm a good person. I should be okay. Right? Is that how you're going to prepare? You know, I, I try my best. I love my spouse. I'm, I should be okay. But sinners filled with guilty fears, behold his wrath prevailing, for they shall rise and find their tears are wholly unavailing. The day of grace is past and gone. They trembling stand before the throne, all unprepared to meet him. Be wise. Be warned. Humble yourself and kiss the sun. That's your only hope. God has put him on the throne. God has given him a name that is above every name. And my exhortation to you, as the psalmist would call us, is to fall on his feet in gratitude for the redemption in which he has secured 
by dying to pay for your sin and being raised from the dead and that you would fall at his feet and you would kiss the son and trust him. You would kiss the son and serve him. You would kiss the son and adore him. You would bow your knee and kiss the son. And if you do, this promise is for you as the psalm ends with these words. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the only refuge from him is the refuge found in him. And even now, at this very moment, the door to heaven is open and Christ stands, the Lord stands at the door, welcoming anyone in if they would come. In fact, I read this psalm and it reminds me, as Psalm 1 did, of the prodigal son, that great story where the son said to the father, I don't want your rules anymore. I want to be my own man. I want to do my own thing. I want to go where I want to go. And so give me my money and I'm out of here. And then he only ended up, of course, in the pigsty of his failure. And where did he have to turn? But to the very one in which he rebelled against. And so he made his way up the road, didn't he? And what must he have thought? How is my father going to receive me? He even rehearsed his speech, right? And we know. He said, well, I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make, just make me your servant. And the father saw him far away. And he ran to him. And he fell on him. And he kissed him. And if you will, the son kissed him back. Have you kissed him? Have you embraced him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? May you do so even now. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. And the grace it offers us and the warning it gives So many of us here have left our rebellion. Not because we're better than anybody else. Please keep those thoughts from us. Simply because we have received the kiss from the Father, which has enabled us to kiss the Son. You loved us first, didn't you, Father? You called us to yourself. We are so thankful that we belong to the King, that we have found our way by your grace into the kingdom of God and there forever shall be. And we just long that for our friends and our neighbors. We long that for the nations. And so glorify yourself. Build your kingdom. Lord Jesus, ask the Father for the nations. Ask him for Ghana. Ask him for Eagle Butte. Ask him for Papua New Guinea and Tijuana. Ask him for Kurdistan. Ask him and send us that others may come to know this king, we pray in Jesus' name.